Well, this is our, uh, our last sermon in this series on First and Second Thessalonians. We've been working through the two books all summer. And so uh, we come to the end of it, and we come to this last passage in the book of Second Thessalonians. And as I was looking at this passage this week, um, uh, I had uh, an epiphany. Um, lightning has struck my brain, and I came up with something new and completely original, which I created. And if you already knew about it, then uh, don't tell me, because that would, that would ruin my exuberance over this. It's, it's a phrase, and so I'm imitating Eric by making up words and phrases uh, to impress others. I mean, for the good of others. Sorry. So, I was... Installation service is off. <laughs> <laughs> Just came out. It's a little too free. Uh, it's this. This is the phrase that struck me as I read this passage and pondered it this week. Red-eyed rest. Red-eyed rest. It's a type of rest where you actually, uh, from which you emerge more tired than you entered. You guys know this? When I thought, that, that, uh, that captures for me, um, you know, late nights uh, basking in the glow of the television or the computer screen. Um, it captures for me these, these things that we enter into thinking, ah, oh, this will be great. And then we, uh, we, we come back out of it, and we're red-eyed, right? We're less, like, sleep-deprived and, and, uh, and even more anxious than before. Um, we try and grab breaks from boredom or diversion to make us feel good. Uh, we, uh, we work at we, – we do these things, um, you know, like, like, uh, like TV or, or – um, here's one that most of you are familiar with probably – family vacation, which is a misnomer. It is. If there are kids involved or in-laws, it's not a vacation. It's a trip. You're going on a trip to do the same things that you usually do in some other place. So don't ex- – I mean, that's red-eyed rest. Don't expect uh, to come back really rejuvenated. Um, and, uh, and, you know, another one, obviously, is, is this uh, Facebook and, and Instagram and, um, and all these things. Uh, you know, that, that's one of those things that uh, we, we spend our time thinking, this will be really nice. I'll catch up with all these people's lives and just kind of look through their pages. All these people to whom I would never take the time to sit down and write out a handwritten letter. Like if you're that distant, for you care that little, don't, don't look at their Facebook. Don't look at their pictures. It doesn't matter. I mean, they don't matter to you, clearly. So don't waste your time and enter into this red-eyed rest for their sake. They don't care if you keep up with them either. Um, it's, it's a state of having a distracted mind, of, uh, of, dream, of, of kind of pondering something even when you're not doing it, um, that, that drags you away from other things you should be doing. Um, and this passage is about red-eyed rest. This passage, uh, in this passage, called, uh, Paul terms this destructive idleness. Destructive idleness. He takes it very seriously, too. Idleness uh, in this, I think, is very different than our typical definitions of what we think of when we hear the word idleness, which is to be distinguished from idolatry, which I didn't know until I was at least 26. Two different things. Idleness is this, what we're talking about today, fake rest, um, you know, kind of some sort of uh, state of inactivity, idolatry being worshiping something that which is not, uh, something which is not God. So, sorry, I needed to make that. That was really helpful to me when somebody did that for me four years ago. Um, 
Paul calls it destructive idleness. So uh, a few things that, we're gonna, we're, that we'll walk through this passage. Uh, idleness is active. Idleness is destructive. Idleness is rooted in fake work. And idleness is expelled by work. It's active, it's destructive, it's rooted in fake work, and it is expelled by work. So first, idleness is active. Paul uses um, phrases when he's describing these destructively idle that help us to understand it's not just people who are lying on the couch all day and refusing to get up and do something productive. It's actually a much, uh, much more complicated and, uh, or, or, or inclusive kind of, kind of uh, conviction he's laying out here. He, he uses the term walking in destructive idleness. And he also talks about these people are busy bodies instead of busy at work. So this idleness is clearly not kind of the classical sloth where you won't get up from a couch. It seems that he's writing to a situation where there are people who are able-bodied workers who weren't producing their own food, and so the, the community, the church community, was providing for them. He's saying you're being a drag on this community. It's bad for other people, and, uh, and it is destructive for you. But it could be this, this kind of destructive idleness, walking in idleness, um, could be anything from, from lying around to gossiping to, uh, to learning Quotes, all the time without actually taking any steps of action. You ever get caught in that? Oh, I probably need to do a little bit more research. Um, to, it could be always needing to accomplish some project uh, or check something off the list. You know, all of these things, I think Paul lumps into this destructive idleness. I was at, um, and I used to work at a church in the Philadelphia area for a pastor who was much different than Eric in many ways. And, and this pastor was really frustrated by me um, because, I, uh, because he's very kind of like time conscious and on top of everything and administrative and stuff. That's, that's not the part that's unlike Eric. I don't know. Maybe you guys made assumptions right there. I don't, I'm sorry, buddy. I, I didn't even mean that. No, I did. Um, so he would get frustrated with me and he'd always send me to these time management seminars. And this one that I went to which is a great way to spend your day, by the way. Um, and this one that I went to, to which I was half an hour late. <laughs> not starting well. Hashtag not starting well. Okay. So, um, it was a time management seminar, and this lady uh, was up there, and they, I mean, they do, it, it's astounding the, the amount of talk they can put into time management, but they can do it. They can waste a lot of time telling me about time management. One of the things she said was, I want you to picture your day as a square, a big old square sheet of paper, right? Square, corners, all this. And everything that you have to do to that, that day is a circle. So you can, you can have, you know, here's your big square, and then you've got your major projects that you're trying to undertake, the big things that you're trying to do uh, at work or at home or, or, or uh, in other places of your life. And those, I want you to picture those as kind of these largest circles that fit into your big square. But when you put in the largest circles, there's more room. So take a smaller circle, you know, cleaning your desk 
or uh, returning a phone call you think will maybe be lengthy or, or organizing one of your files. And you, you put those the kind of smallish circles, not tiny, but smaller circles in there because you're filling it up. It's square. It's a square thing and, and round inside of it. So there's all this little room there. And then, then there's still more room left so you can you know, check an email or you can uh, pick up a piece of trash or you can, you know, I, I clean your car. You can do all these things. And she was, you know, this, it's amazing. You can just get the circles tinier and tinier and tinier. You can think a happy thought. It's great. <laughs> and it's a really alluring way to live life, if you, especially if you're that type of person that loves the kind of, there's a high in accomplishment, isn't there? Like you get this buzz, like I just finished that. That was wonderful. And nobody cares. That, I think that way of life can be seducing you and me into, uh, into destructive idleness. It really can. That allure of accomplishment. Because, um, because we want to do something. We want to have something accomplished. And, uh, and at the end of it, like I said, it doesn't do any good for anybody. It doesn't actually produce anything important. Idleness always has a goal. It's active. It moves. Um, it moves. It's a good thing to use Google to discover new tips on training your unruly dog. It is a bad thing to do that when you should be preparing for your lesson that's coming up in an hour. Right? You can't, it's, it's destructive idleness not because it's a bad thing in itself, but because it's mistimed or misdirected or misused. It's good to organize your closets and have a clean house, but when it's time to hang out with your kids, that's destructive idleness. I'm sure I, it is. So idleness is active. Secondly, idleness is destructive. Um, this red-eyed rest is destructive. Um, you know it's red-eyed rest or a fake break when you emerge from that activity uh, more used up than you were previously. Uh, I, I tend to get into this. I had a, um, a friend named Jesse Robinson, and Jesse and I were part of this youth ministry together for years. Um, and, uh, and we would work together pretty closely. And, and uh, I was, one day I was telling Jesse, like, oh, hey, man, listen to this. This is awesome. And he didn't care anything about this at, at all. I'm getting a new phone. And, and he was like, I don't. Uh, but I'm getting a really good deal. And do you know how much easier this new phone is going to make my life? And, you know, I went on for a few minutes until he uh, kindly stopped me. He said, Corby, do you realize we've worked together for like eight, nine months now? And the most excited I've ever heard you be is about phones. It just, it pulls me in. It's something that I think I'm going uh, to achieve some kind of great productivity by a new gadget. Life is going to be easier. I have more time to rest. I have more time. You know, I'll, 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 I'll get a good deal on this thing and feel really cool about myself. And then I'll own this thing. And then no one can say that I don't exist because I actually own this thing. You see that? I'm holding it. I'm here. I matter. You know, it, it's, it's one of these things I was giving not only the time that it takes to, like, sit up at night when Rachel goes to bed and I, like, she's asleep. Okay. And then I, like, 
scroll through, like, oh, I think I could get a really good deal on this. Like, okay, I'm watch that on eBay. I'll see where that one goes. And, you know, and just keep researching. And then I stay up until like two hours later and I wake up the next morning. And not only, you know, am, am I, you know, did I lose sleep, but then I'm grumpy with my kids and I'm distracted at work. And, and I'm thinking about this really cool thing that I could get. Instead of doing what, I, what is in front of me and taking care of the people that are, in, that are in my life right then. This destructive idleness. It's destructive. Paul has a good way to tell it. We have a family tradition um, in, at Christmas time. And, uh, and it's with Rachel's, with my wife's family. Uh, now my, my college pastor told me, Corby, it's not in the Bible, but it should be, that your in-laws will be the bane of your existence. And I'm happy that I get to, to kind of, I don't know if I'm the exception that proves the rule. I really like my in-laws. They're a lot of fun. They're really cool. But there's this one great family tradition. Uh, and it happens, at, uh, you know, around Christmas time, like all the, the older kids from my, my in-laws descend on the house. And we've all got little kids. And then we, you know, the, the house is chaotic all day. We put all the little kids to bed. And things are kind of slowing down. And then this tradition is heralded by my brother-in-law, John, who's married into the family also, saying this. Everybody out of the way. Terry is bustling. Everybody move. Because Rachel's mom, Terry, about that time in the evening when her kids who live out of town are here, ready, they're chilled, they're ready, to, she starts bustling around and moving things and like picking them up and like taking one pile and dividing it into three and scattering it around the house. And then she cleans things. And they're all sitting there in the living room like with a warm mug of tea. Like, Mom, come on, hang out with us. Come, come here. We, we, wanna, we tried to watch um, It's a Wonderful Life last year. And she was just up and down. We're like... You serious? I mean, I don't know. She's maybe getting her steps in on her pedometer. I'm not sure what it was. But, and I love my mother-in-law. But that's destructive idleness, right? She was not producing. The, she was not um, taking care of the people in front of her. She was compulsive. Like she, it's just compelled. I feel that way towards worthless things like technology. My mother-in-law happens to feel it towards having an orderly home. But it's compulsive, it's pulling, it's sucking instead of being with people around you. And it's destructive, it hurts, right? Idleness is destructive. Because it's a good thing, oftentimes it's a good thing that gets in the way of the best thing. I went long last time, so I'm skipping things. (laughs) <laughs> all right, idleness is destructive. Um, all kinds of it are de- is destructive because we, as humans, our lives are designed to be oriented around each other. You can't just say, um, because it doesn't hurt anybody else, then I can do whatever I want with my life. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. There are a lot of things that... Never mind. I'm going to skip that one, but... Um, it is. I mean, if nothing else, just think of your poor mother. You know, your mom, what would she think if she knew that you were up late at night, like, trying to find a really good deal on biking shoes and you don't ever ride your bike? Like, she just would be, she would be ashamed, you know, for the sake of your mother. No, it's, but it's just, like, everything you do, it affects somebody. Um, that's a petty example, but 
is true. That's why, and but, but it is a big deal, right? Paul says this, this kind of idleness destroys the community. When you're not willing to work quietly and produce your own food, as he commands, then you're relying on others. You're sucking resources from other people, and it's destroying our community. And that's why Paul says this stuff that is really hard to hear. He says, if there's somebody, and is there a brother walking in idleness, have nothing to do with him. You know, it's, it's expelling, pushing them out is what, he, is what he says to do with them. And I was all set this week as I prepared. I was like, I'm going to find out a way that he's not talking about that because I don't like that. And I was kicking things around, you know, maybe he, maybe he just means communion. Maybe that's all he means, like just expel them from, you know, associate with them at the Lord's Supper. And okay, well, I understand that. Sometimes that's neat. But no, there's really no way to disguise, to disguise this. Paul is saying, put, get them out so that they can be, they may be ashamed. It's really hard language. It's really hard. Did, did you ever think that, that Jesus may want you to be pushed out of his church because you spend too much time on Instagram? I don't think you probably came this morning thinking you'd hear that. But it's destructive, this idleness. It's destructive. And I was, I was not into that uh, until uh, Eric shared this, this letter that he, uh, that he read this week with me. Um, it's from a, um, from a man who, uh, who was living in sin and secret sin within his congregation. He was, he was, um, uh, he was a brother, as Paul refers to, to believers. He was part of the church, and, uh, but he was, had all this secret sin that was destructive to his family and the broader church, and they kept saying... You know, they kept giving him chances and walking with him. And he said, they were very patient with me. And, but then I just kept getting better and better at lying and better and better at, at deceiving people and saying, oh, yeah, it's true. I'm, I'm repenting. I'm, but, and then finally he said, it all came out. And I realized that I had been believing my own lies um, and, that, and the, the, how ugly this thing was. And he goes on, he says this, and that's when I heard these words. You are not welcome in our gathered worship. You will not be admitted to the communion table. You will not be allowed to meet with your small group, nor with others in our church body. He continues, and yet I heard much more than those words. I also heard, we love you, we grieve with you. Initially, the statements seemed dichotomous. It seemed like they contradicted each other. But the reality is that they are beautifully linked. Both were used to discipline me. Both were used to call me to repentance. Both were incredibly gracious and loving. My pastors were courageous enough to trust that God wanted to work in me without me continuing to use the church as a way of hiding within the body. It was in these long days and nights without my friends, pastors, and even my family for a time that I began to feel the weight of my sin. Ooh, that's tough. That's how seriously we, uh, Paul is taking this, the welfare of the community and its destructive idleness. So why would anybody choose this red-eyed rest, these fake breaks, this destructive idleness? It's because uh, idleness is active, it's destructive, and it's rooted in fake work. It's rooted in fake work. Paul says in this passage and others that are, that are linked to it and similar theme, he says these are the, the, uh, the ways of true work. He said in verse 8 of our passage that they won't be a burden to the congregation, that you'll earn your own food, right? He says... In chapter 1 of this, this letter, uh, that it will be for the sake of the good name of Jesus. That you will work in such a way as to bring honor to Jesus' name. 
and similarly, uh, that it will win the respect of outsiders. And that your work is actually designed to be a way of loving other people. That's the purpose of your work. And to be able to earn in order to share with others in need. You see that? Not be a burden. The good name of Jesus. Win respect from outsiders for Jesus' sake. Love for others and to be able to share. To be able to give away. I don't hear much about self-fulfillment in that. I don't hear a whole lot about doing what you love. I think that's deceptive when we think that is what makes good work. Um, It sounds great, but it's deceptive, and I think this is one of the underlying deceits of it. The idea is that you, that you're, uh, you won't actually need rest if you do this kind of work. If you do what you love, then you'll like, return home just full and joyful and like, ready to do anything. And like, your, work, your life will be much more productive even after your work because you're doing what you love. And, and it's, it's trying to wrap these two together that just don't exist. Not that it's a bad thing to do what you love at all, but if that becomes what you prize most highly your own fulfillment, your own good, then you're, you're taking out what Paul has said, what, what, what Jesus is telling you, that work is for others' good and you're inserting my good. And when you take that link out of this chain, any one of those that you choose to remove will, not, will, will corrupt the rest of work. It just leaks into it and it rots it out. It corrupts it all. If I'm trying to produce for the good of the community, making sure that I have enough money to share and, and, and winning the respect of outsiders and winning the respect of, uh, you know, trying to gain a good name for me, then it all crumbles, right? I could be doing all these other things for a decent reason, but then if, if it's really just about me, then it crumbles. And everybody in here knows what that looks like when you work for your own credit because there, because I'm going to say this carefully with much tact, there's no such thing as a good boss. Like your boss that you complain about, every other boss is like that. I, I mean, I don't know. I've talked to a lot of people about their work situation, and nobody likes it. Andy doesn't like Michael. It's okay. I'm just kidding. They both they work together. I haven't even asked Andy, but I'm assuming. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's just a typical, because most bosses aren't doing what they do for the good of other people, right? It's just, and, and no bosses like employees. No employee works hard enough. No employee does what they're supposed to do. No employee is self-directed enough. It's all this because each of us takes out some link in that one way or another. And you may, uh, you may be familiar with one particular boss who, who really is, uh, cares more about his own good name than, than anything else. Um, his name is Michael Scott. And he says this. I'll keep this brief. He says, uh, would I rather be loved or feared? Easy. Both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> I love it. His, uh, his predecessor in the British version, which is hilarious, David Brent. Uh, says this, when people say to me, would you rather be thought of as a funny man or a great boss? My answer is always the same. To me, they're not mutually exclusive. You see, they're living, I mean, nobody likes them, right, as a boss, because they're living for what, their, their, their work is about their credit and their, their good name and uh, what they want. Um, but Paul says that, uh, that, when, that when work lines up in these ways, 
And also when work lines up in the way that Paul demonstrated, he said, I didn't claim my right to receive your support. I worked night and day so that I wouldn't be a burden on the community. Um, so I could set an example for you. Paul didn't claim his rights. I worked for um, my uncle, Stu, Uncle Stu um, from New York. And, uh, and Uncle Stu runs a, uh, a construction materials warehouse. And that translated means lots of heavy junk. And so our job in that construction materials warehouse was to, like, stock heavy stuff and then take that heavy stuff and, un- and, take it and then put it in trucks and deliver it all over town. And, uh, and so it was, it was kind of a labor-intensive ordeal. And when I, my first day there, nobody knew that I, uh, that I belonged to Uncle Stu. So I, would ride around, I was riding around in the truck getting trained. Here's how we deliver stuff. And, you know, fill, and, uh, and I would say questions like, well, how is it to work here? What, I mean, how do you like it? And to a person, like, these are just kind of, you know, Nashville good old boys. They're like, man, I tell you, I just, you know, I don't like this. It's just boring or whatever. And they, they would go on and on about it. They didn't really like the work all that much. But then when they came around to Stu, not a bad word. I mean, not a one of them. They had no idea who I was. You know, that, oh, man, Stu, that dude, that guy will get out there and he will load strut. Strut of these, like, big heavy things that you use for construction. They're really big, long, heavy. He'll, he'll do any, I mean, he'll sweep that warehouse. He'll stock items. He'll do anything. You know, Stu was the founder and boss of this thing. Dude's worth, I don't know how much, a lot of money. Um, but he shows up every day ready to do whatever needs to be done. He doesn't claim, he didn't claim his right. His right as a boss is to sit in the air conditioning, you know, and, and tell other people what to do. But he'd get out there and he won the respect of his employees in that way. You know, claiming our rights, our right to make enough money in our job, our right to, to have a job that we enjoy, our right even to have a job that we think uses what we're really good at. Those aren't rights that you get to claim. Because you know what? God doesn't give rights. He gives gifts. God did not give any rights to all of humanity. He gives lots of gifts to humanity. And this kind of boss almost never exists. The one who doesn't claim their rights. The one who works for others. Nor does this type of employee. Unless you know that idleness is expelled by work. We said idleness is active, it's destructive, it's rooted in fake work, and finally, it's expelled by work. It's expelled by work. Why do you think that Paul starts this section about work and rest? He jumps in with this. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Christ's steadfast, loving work. It's because Jesus' work is what enables our work. Because not only did he set the example of what it means to be other-centered, to be, to be working for the good name of God the Father, um, to be concerned about helping others, but Jesus on the cross produced for the community, for the welfare of those who could not produce for themselves. On the cross, Jesus gave up his right to the eternal delight and fellowship of the Holy Father, He gave up that right to take on the only right that you and I can claim. The only thing that we can stand and pound our fist on the table and say, I deserve this, is God's judgment. And Jesus took took our right and gave us his. He took God's wrath like a waterfall 
unto himself so that you and I could, could rest by the still waters of our good shepherd and his, and his delight and acceptance for us. That is the work that expels fake work and destructive idleness. Because it's the only work that absolutely had to be done. And when Jesus finishes it, he finishes it in this way, just like Paul finishes this section. He says, may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times in every way. And if you receive that peace, do you see how that would change your work? Do you see how it would change your rest? The only work that ever absolutely had to be done, the only thing that, that uh, existence would not continue if Jesus did not accomplish this, that was completed on the cross. So everything you do is adding on to that. Everything you do, you can take a break. You can put your, you can put your tools down. You can put them down. You don't have to accomplish that. You don't have to clean that closet or finish that project. Or find out if you can change the brakes on your Toyota truck or whatever. Sorry, foreign Chevy truck. He says to you, be at peace. There is nothing left to prove of yourself. The love of, of our uh, living God is upon you There is nothing that you can prove by your work. It says, be at peace. You are provided for. He will always take care of you. He turned his back on Jesus, so he would never turn his back on you. He also does this in his work. He says, you may work. You may rest, he says. But you also may work, real work. He's given you his good name and his reputation. And so your work doesn't have to be about building yours. You don't have to work like Michael Scott, wanting everyone to think you're a funny man or the, or the best boss they ever had. You can actually work for their good, right? You don't need to win a reputation anymore. You don't have to prove anything to yourself. This is how rest intertwines with work so that destructive idleness or red-eyed rest is done away with. Um, I had a a friend say this week as he looked at this passage, uh, I asked him what his thoughts were, and he said, you know what I think? I think if you really live this way, working quietly for the good of others, your Instagram page would really be boring, right? Nobody cares if you're doing that very much. You're not doing adventurous stuff, but you're living quietly, working for the good of others so you can produce and give away. But I think that's going to preserve you from your red-eyed rest, from your destructive idleness. May Jesus make it so among us. Amen.